All right, so tonight we are going forward in our second study in the Gospel of Matthew, return to the New Testament, and as we go through Matthew's Gospel, we're here at that Gospel where it's Jesus being presented as the Messiah, the Christ, the King of the Jews. Not just the King of the Jews, but the promised one from the Scriptures going all the way back to the fall of humanity in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve and all those prophecies and the animal sacrifices, the Passover lamb, all these things, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the nation of Israel, Moses, the judges, the kings, it's all, all moving in time, space, and matter toward the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And we're told in Galatians that in the fullness of time that God sent forth his only son, you know, to be born of a woman under the law to redeem those who were under the law, the law of God. So he came to fulfill God's perfect law, which we can't do, to bring us to salvation and relationship with God through his life and his sacrifice, as Andrew was even just praying about, gosh, just being under the blood and the goodness of the Lord. So in chapter 1, we saw the genealogy of Jesus Christ and the birth of Jesus Christ. But here in chapter 2 of Matthew, we get something profoundly unique in the scriptures. We get an entire chapter where it's just Matthew. And the synoptic gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we might often get a story that has three different versions or perspectives on that story. But here, chapter 2, this all belongs to Matthew. It's just unique text to him. And as we've seen the genealogy of Jesus and the birth of Jesus, we get the really only other scriptures pertaining to him. We would say the childhood of Jesus, but particularly the young childhood of Jesus. And I must say, maybe you've been like me, but in times past, when I read Matthew chapter 2, I just kind of read through it. Like a road trip, it's just not my exit. You know, that's just, you know, I drive across country quite a bit with my wife, and this that's just not our exit. That's not, you just go by it. It's like, that's not really there. And so I've always looked at Matthew 2 as a setup chapter, or transitional chapter, to set up chapter 3 and 4 and the things that come around. But tonight, we are going to look at Matthew chapter 2 and Jesus the young child. The title young child is used eight times in this chapter describing Jesus. He's a toddler. He's pre-K. I've never really thought to say, let's, let's look at the events in his life when he's a toddler and in that helpless state. And he's, he's a perfect toddler, by the way. And what that looks like, okay? So chapter 2, Matthew, here we go. We're going to read the entire chapter and then we're we're going to get to application pretty quick tonight once we frame it in the context. Now, so his, Jesus is born. His name's called Jesus because Jesus means Savior, and that's what he's going to do. He's going to save his people from their sins. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men came from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we've seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king, that is Herod the great, heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ, the Messiah, was to be born. And so they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it's written by the prophet Micah, but you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. 
Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child. And when you found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. And when they heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed from their own country for their own country another way. Now, when they departed, behold, an angel Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed from Egypt and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son, according to the book of Hosea. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry, and he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and its surrounding district from two years old and under, according to the time which he determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled which was spoken by, uh, spoken of by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Now when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the young child's life are dead. Then he arose, took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee, and he came and dwelt in the city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. So it's a historical record bridging his birth to ultimately how he comes out of Nazareth. He will be called in his adult life Jesus of Nazareth. He'll be identified with the city of Nazareth to distinguish him from all the other Jesuses because Jesus was a common name at the time. It's a very interesting chapter. We have his parents, the Magi, the wise men from the east, which could be, and many speculate, are Jewish in descent because as we're going through Ezra, we realize when the Jews came back from the captivity around 535 B.C. from Babylon, and when Cyrus came to power and the Medo-Persian Empire conquered them, and what was left of Judah and the, uh, the Jews, that about 50,000 came back to rebuild that second temple. We're, we're reading it in Ezra right now on Tuesday nights. Well, history shows, and based upon extra-biblical records, there's probably at least 1 to 2 million Jews in the empire that stayed in that part of the world, the Babylonian, you know, Iraq, Iran area. So it's very likely that these Magi, these wise men from the east, had Jewish descent. But they came looking for the king of the Jews. They knew the star was taken to the king of the Jews, and of course, that's a problem with Herod the Great because he's the king of the Jews. He was a ruthless, cunning politician who loved power. 
he was tight with Caesar Augustus, and he knew how to survive in the changing political worlds of Rome, and he was very successful at it. He had multiple wives, at least eight. Josephus, the great Jewish historian, tells us many of them by their names. He didn't trust his wives, and he didn't trust some of his sons, so he actually accused one wife of adultery, I believe it was his first or second wife, and had her executed, and he killed those sons. He just was that guy. So you think, who kills babies in Bethlehem? Well, the guy that killed his own sons and executed his wife, that guy. It just tells you what kind of a person he was. He's a full tyrant, totalitarian, authoritarian, probably, you know, sociopath, psychopath, all the above. He was that guy. Herod the Great. He was not only cunning, but extremely successful with what he did. His building projects. The Western Wall in Jerusalem, the holiest site for the Jews, was fortified by him. He's the man behind that. So Ezra's temple was built, and then Herod fortified that and did many other types of things that like Solomon would have done centuries before. And he's well noted in the historical records for all that he did. His was a dynasty. He was an Idumean, which really makes him like a descendant of Esau, and many connect the Amalekites to him, actually. But he's an Idumean, so he wasn't really a Jew, but he grew up around Jews and understood Jewish culture. And he has this genealogy that comes from him, where he had these different sons from these different women, the ones he didn't kill, and then it's this, and this first cousin's over here, and, you know, Herodias, who had John the Baptist beheaded. Her daughter, Salome, married the uncle from over here, not the Philip, the Tetrarch, but the other Philip. If you look at it, you can just Google it. And you try and connect the dots. And it's about four generations of a dynasty, Herod the Great, but he's the chief of it. So he's a key player here. And it says that all Jerusalem was troubled that these guys came looking for the king of the Jews. Yeah, they're troubled because they know he kills anyone who's a threat to him being the king of the Jews. And that would have created uncertainty and instability for everybody. They were troubled. The kings of the earth don't like the king of the universe too much, right? That's why the psalm says, why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing against the Lord and his anointed? It's always been that way. So this is how it was in his coming. So you have his parents, the Magi, Herod the Great. These prophecies, there's four things fulfilled in the scripture attributed to the prophets of the Old Testament. And then the dreams, like, in a dream, the Lord did this. In a dream, the Lord spoke. And you're like, wow, this is, this is a unique chapter. There's like, there's moving parts. It's a pretty, actually exciting chapter, these things happening. And with scripture being quoted, some seems obvious, but some's like, how, how does that work? So as we look at this chapter tonight, we are looking at Jesus, the young child, and the scriptures that he fulfilled and what they mean to us tonight. Because even though he fulfilled them as a toddler in this context, he fulfilled them as the son of God, the son of man, the Messiah for everyone who calls upon his name to be saved. And so again, we're looking at Jesus tonight. And one final thought before we get to application is I noticed something going over and over that there's a little bit of a chess match in this chapter between God and men, right? And I noticed you have now and then. In the chapter, it says, now, after Jesus was born. Now, this is what's going on. And then you have the response of Herod, verse 7. Then Herod. So now this happens, then Herod. Then it says in verse 
13, now uh, when the Magi departed, the Lord spoke and warned Joseph to get out of there and go to Egypt. And then verse 16, here's another move. Then Herod, so now is the Lord and then is Herod. And then verse 19, it says, now when Herod had died, the Lord brought them back. See, the Lord's like, now, then, now, then, now. Isn't that how it works with the kingdom, right? The Lord's doing the here and now, and he's on the throne. But the then is just all the efforts of the kingdom of darkness and the devil and men deceived, women deceived by him to try and counteract what the Lord does. But we're just reminded in this chapter what Corinthians says is the Lord catches the wise in their own craftiness. And he, he always prevails. And no matter how often it seems like, we went through this in Second Chronicles when the line of David was down to one, the hidden child. No matter how close it looks like, it seems like the kingdom of God has been defeated by the kingdom of darkness. That 0.001% of the kingdom still in play will flip the script and turn it around. The Lord will always have the final say. And we see that in this chapter. You cannot stop. We cannot stop. Men cannot stop. No force in this universe can stop the will of the Lord as he determines it for his universe and for his prize jewel in the universe, you and me, the body of Christ, the church of Jesus Christ. Now, the young child Jesus is associated with three of these four scriptures that are fulfilled. The children being slaughtered is associated with Jeremiah. That's a separate one. But the three are very interesting because one is Jesus associated as a ruler and a shepherd in Bethlehem. The other is as the son of God being called out of Egypt. And the third one is being called a Nazarene. One is quoting the scripture from Micah, but not completely, but enough that it is contextually correct as to identify where the king would be born. The other one's like, oh, I guess I could see that. Out of Egypt, I called my son. When Hosea spoke those words, it would have been understood like Israel, the nation, is his son. But I can see how there's a deeper secondary prophetic meaning that literally now it's, well, it is, there, not whether I see it or not, there is a secondary prophetic, we call that double prophecy. There's a second prophetic meaning to it that Jesus is speaking really of Jesus coming out of Egypt, which who could have ever thought the Messiah would come out of Egypt, right? Did, did not see that coming. But here it is in chapter 2. And then the third one, the enigma of the three, is that he'll be called a Nazarene. The prophets say he'll be called a Nazarene, and yet there's no prophecies that actually say he's going to be a Nazarene. So you're like, huh, that's a little bit of a head-scratcher right there. i got to think about that one. So let's start with the young child Jesus and the prophecy concerning him being born in Bethlehem. Jesus was always going to come from the house of David. David comes from Bethlehem, the city of bread. Jesus is the bread of life. He's, it was always going to come from Bethlehem. Caesar Augustus, Herod's buddy, sends a decree to register everybody to pay taxes. And we see in Luke's gospel, they had to leave where they were living in the north, Galilee, go down there to be registered for the census. God just two young, beautiful people, probably teenagers, betrothed to be married. The virgin, the immaculate conception already happened. There they go. They're at the mercy of ruthless governments and power. They're gonna, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. That's just the way it is. 
If God says absolutely emphatically, these are the details, then that's the way it is. And Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Of the house of David, from the line of the tribe of Judah, as a Senate, we saw chapter 1 of Abraham. Abraham, father of the faith, then the tribe of Judah, from the tribe of Judah, house of David. Here comes the king, King Jesus. There he is. Now, in this text, it says he's the ruler and he's the shepherd. But in the original text of Micah, it says the one who's going forth has no beginning or ending. The fullness of the prophecy in Micah 5 2 is that this one coming in Bethlehem isn't just a shepherd and ruler, he's God and he's eternal. That's important. In the context of the scripture they're quoting here to tell Herod and the Magi's where this young child, this king of the Jews, will be born, they only quote two-thirds of what it really entails to who this child is. He is the ruler, not just king of the Jews, but king of kings. And he is a shepherd, but he's God because he has no end, beginning or ending and no going forth, which Hebrews always talks, also talks about in the New Testament. So it's even implied in the Micah prophecy that it would be God who's coming to rule and be the king of Israel. But now just stepping back to the context of Matthew where it only is recorded the two things when the scribes in, uh, interpreted this passage, I draw your attention to he who will shepherd his people. Tonight it's going to be reminded that the Lord is our shepherd. David, of course, and we spent quite a bit of time with David when we were going through the Old Testament, on Tuesdays, and it came into Saturday as well. David had the heart for God. The great King David, who lived around 1000 BC, he had the heart for God, the second king of Israel. God loved him. David loved the Lord. And David was the caretaker of his father's sheep. He was with the sheep. And before he became the man that delivered Israel from Goliath and took on Goliath, the Lord had given him victory over a lion and a bear in rescuing his father's sheep. And he said, to Saul, the Lord deliver me from the bear and the lion. He will deliver me from this uncircumcised Philistine. So he already had a testimony of faith as a shepherd, as a teenage shepherd. And we know he was proficient with the sling. And he's a warrior and he loves the Lord. Now he wrote Psalm 23, that beautiful psalm that says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures and he leads me besides still waters. Yea, though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I will fear no evil for thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. He wrote that a thousand years before Christ came. When he had troubles with the Lord, he referred to the people of God as the sheep of God. And he understood that that's how God saw him as well. David truly was a king, but in that role as king and a warrior, he saw God's people that he was over as the sheep. And he saw himself as being a sheep as well under the stewardship of the great shepherd the Lord. In this prophecy of Micah, hundreds of years after the time of David, pointing us to Jesus, we are told the one who would come from the house of David would also be a shepherd. But this shepherd's a whole nother level, right? Because there in John 10, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd and I lay down my life for the sheep. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down for the sheep. So tonight we're reminded, after singing these beautiful worship songs with Andrew and Sophie, 
and just living our life, we're reminded tonight that Jesus is our shepherd. He is the good shepherd. He is the good shepherd that David spoke of who had come from his own loins, if you will. And Jesus, the Lord is my shepherd. And Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. And he's the good shepherd that lays down his life for the sheep. Worship generation, body of Christ. We're reminded that Jesus loves us so much tonight. Even though when this conversation was happening in Herod's palace and the temple area, somewhere about 15 miles down the road, <laughs> there's a little toddler, like the toddlers in the IT room tonight. A little toddler running around. He's a perfect toddler. I can't say theologically that his first word wasn't no, but I don't think it was no, right? First word of toddler is no, no, right? Can you imagine the toddler goes, yes. Now, Jesus, Jesus, you need to stay here and do this, yes, right? Da, in Russian, right? You're like, yeah. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, who knows? He, his first word might have been no, but I'm thinking it probably was yes. Because that's how you know kids are descendants from Adam. Because they say no and they rebel against authority over them. What are you saying, Dre? I'm saying Jesus is the perfect toddler. He had no sin in him. Any cognitive sense of rebellion against God's authority? None. So those perfect little toddlers hanging out in Bethlehem in a toddler world with little toddler toys, and this conversation is going on in Jerusalem with all the, the power people, the religious power people, the scribes and those dudes, and Herod the Great and the Magi coming with their money, their gold, frankincense, and myrrh. These, this, this, these power people, right? You know, the little toddler's like, well, take your first step. Oh, look, Jesus is walking. You can do it. Like, right? The young child. Jesus, the young child. And yet, when they're talking about this scripture, when they're quoting this scripture, Herod's hearing this scripture, the Magi's hearing the scripture, and the scribes are declaring it, that toddler is going to grow up to become the shepherd who dies on the cross for our sins, who willingly surrenders his life for our sins. He truly is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And not only did he do it to save us from our sins, but to come for us when we face the day of the Lord as well. Because, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil, for he's coming for us. The Lord is coming for us. And when we give our life to Christ, he's the author and finisher of our faith, and he's going to seal our faith on the day of the Lord. I spoke today at the men's ministry event at Calvary Chapel Downey. And the first thing I observed right away is four generations. All four generations were there. Some of the dads brought their kids, you know. It's like maybe a couple of six-year-olds, a nine-year-old, 10-year-old, 11-year-old, 12-year-old, uh, Latino, uh, African-American, Asian, whites. Uh, you know, it was, was multi-ethnic and multi-generational. And I'm looking at baby boomers over here and Z generation over here and millennials and Gen X in between. And in the middle of sharing, I said, you know, listen, we're all going to see the Lord. You know, realize in this room, one by one, one by one, we are all stepping into eternity. That's the great reality. Every morning I look in the mirror and say, eternity today in my, my exchange. Faith today in my masterpiece. But eternity every day. And you know, it's funny how the clock moves. Like if you have like a digital clock and you're, you know, your life's an hourglass and you know what's behind, what you've already had and what's above you, you don't know, but you can count. 
And when one day goes by, like, ah, oh, it's just a day. By the way, never kill time. You redeem time. You don't kill time. You don't waste time. You redeem time. It's the most valuable thing you have. One day, click. That's why I always quote the dates, right? I've done this for decades. One day, click. Huh. A week, click. A little bigger click. A month, click. A quarter, click. A year, click. A decade, click. Right? So that's why I draw distinctions between a day, a week, a month, a quarter, a year, a decade. We celebrate 25 years at a high level, 50 years. Wow. 50 years is a big deal. 50 years with anything is a big deal. 50 years with a job. 50 years of life is a big deal. 50 years with a career is a big deal. I hadn't thought about it much, but since I've been a Calvary Chapel pastor for 35 years, I recently thought, hey, if I hang in there 15 years, I'll have 50 years. If the Lord gives it to me. 50 years married is a huge deal. That's, that's why I make a big deal about Bruce and Gloria being married for 50 years, because that just doesn't happen every day. I mean, the odds are so against that for various reasons. It's just to say you get married at 70, that two people at 20, that two people make it to 70, the odds, you know, aren't really quite there for two people to make it to 70 just in general. And to do so and not, you know, to actually work through things and love each other and, and get to that point. It's a big deal. The days go quick. Week. Month. Quarter. Year. Decade. And then it's a lifetime. And we're all going to step into eternity. And when we step into eternity, Jesus will transform from being just who we see by faith. Though we don't see him, we believe in him. And we're persuaded he's able to keep that which is committed to him. But as the good shepherd who's died in our place on the cross and empowers us by his spirit to live for him. But really, when you're going to really know the payoff of the good shepherd is when he comes for you and me on the day of the Lord, because that's his day. And he's going to come for us as the good shepherd and take us through the valley of the shadow of death. I go back to John, who stepped into eternity a couple of years ago during COVID. Seeing them at the hospital, Kaiser Anaheim, and praying with them and praying some, playing some praise songs for him, and it happened so fast, the cancer that he had. And he, he knew he was going to be at the Lord, and I knew he was going to be at the Lord. And I'd been his pastor for, you know, at least five years. And, you know, so the curtain is like a drawn curtain, like it was like a shower curtain almost. And, and I'm leaving, and he's like kind of over there by Patricia, but closer. And I was like, I was like, love you, John. I'll see you in glory. And he just went, yeah. I was like, see you there. And I called, John, I called Sam Cook as soon as I got to the car. I said, I'm telling you, John's, John's going home. His flight's, he's about to board his flight to glory. And we found out later that night he stepped into eternity. That's us. Jesus is our good shepherd. Be encouraged. Be comforted. Our, our transfer, our going from here to there in that dimension isn't based upon the work of the flesh or that we had a good day yesterday and we're, we're not going to have a bad day tomorrow because we promised it. Our good shepherd's coming for us because he's our savior and died in our place. He's risen from the grave for our glory and he's got this. He's the author and the finisher of our faith. The one born in Bethlehem, body of Christ, worship generation, Jesus is the shepherd from Bethlehem, and that good shepherd loves you and me.
And the application is really simple. Just know and believe he is your good shepherd and he's always for you. How many times did he teach you about, you know, the shepherd going after the one missing sheep, right? He leaves the 99 after the one. He's for us. He's the shepherd and overseer of our soul, Peter the Apostle said. He's for us. So the shepherd from Bethlehem are like, yes and amen. Yeah, yeah. And yes and amen. Get Andrew and Sophie leading worship again because we feel really good about this. Yes and amen. That's the easy one in this one. They're, they're all a blessing, but that one's straight up face right. The second one, son out of Egypt. So he's a shepherd from Bethlehem, but he's the son out of Egypt. So you think about this one. If you ever, ever wonder why Jewish people read, like Isaiah 53 seems really obvious to all of us, right? When you read about Jesus on the cross, Isaiah 53, you're like, how, how could anyone come up with anything other than that this is the son of God on the cross? And you think, well, how do the Jewish people who reject Jesus as their Messiah interpret this passage that is just so clear? Well, they interpret it metaphorically that it's the nation of Israel. That's how they interpret it. So when the synagogues read Isaiah 53 describing Jesus on the cross, that's to them like an allegory, metaphorical, of the nation of Israel and their existence as the people of God. That's how they see it. Like, well, that's, that's not what it is. It's literally the sun. But the reason they would interpret it that way is something like here in Hosea in its original context, because here in Hosea in its original context, it would be understood that Israel is the son. They are spoken of as a son in this context, going back to the original prophecy when it was spoken through Hosea. But now, with the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, with Matthew being led of the Lord, we realize that this son of Hosea has a deeper meaning. It's not the nation of Israel, but it's really literally the son of God. It's very clear. I mean, the context, Scripture interprets Scripture. This is really clear, that this passage from Hosea means it's interpreted that what's ultimate meaning when it was written centuries before was that when Jesus, the young child, the toddler, he would spend a couple years in Egypt, and he would be called out of Egypt back to Israel, which is really fascinating. He basically took a religious pilgrimage before he could cognitively remember it. I traveled the world as a kid because my dad was in the Marine Corps, so we were all over. And I've recently thought, like, oh, I'd love to go to Korea. You know, Korea fascinates me, South Korea. And, you know, Padres and Dodgers are playing their home opener next year in Korea, three-game series in Seoul. I'm like, oh, that'd be fun. Take Jenny George, Padre family, go to Korea and do that. We're going through some family photo albums recently that my parents had. I never realized this. Because there's, we went to Japan a lot, so there's pictures of me in Japan. But there's a picture, and it's Joe in Korea. I've been to Korea, and there I am, toddler Joe. I'm wearing a heavy coat, right? I'm like two, two and a half. I've been to Korea. I don't remember going to Korea, but I've been to Korea. I'm not sure Jesus, being the son of man and the son of God, would remember going to Egypt when he's two, three, and four. There's not much to remember any of us from when we're two, three, or four. It's there, but sometimes you're not sure if it's the family photo that makes you remember it, or you remember it from your own experiences. Jesus, when he was a toddler, and when you were a toddler, who knows where you went, maybe you went to Korea, you didn't know it. He had a spiritual pilgrimage. 
His heavenly father spoke through a dream to determine that his parents would take refuge in Egypt. And he would do the same pilgrimage, essentially, that the nation of Israel did. He's the king of the Jews, and the father had him go to Egypt to do the same trek, if you will, from Egypt to Israel as their king when he's a toddler. That's fascinating. And if you really think about it, it's almost mind-blowing. Whoa, wow. Why would the father, apart from keeping him safe from Herod and Archelaus, but the, the, God could have done that any other ways. He didn't have to make his son go to Egypt for a couple of years, right, with Joseph and Mary, fund it with the gold, frankincense, and myrrh probably to pull it off financially for people basically extremely poor. But he did. And now we think, why would the father do that other than to identify? Because remember, we're going to see next week that Jesus gets baptized to identify with us. He didn't need to be baptized. We need to be baptized. But he gets baptized to identify with us. And we identify with him in baptism. So the father decreed that he would go to Egypt and be called out of Egypt, fulfill Hosea 11.2 or 11.1, and for our benefit, for Israel's benefit as the king of the Jews. This was an important part of his childhood. And since we have hardly anything of his childhood, we got to say, well, this is very interesting. Well, when you teach the Old Testament as a Calvary Chapel pastor or evangelical pastor, when you're talking about Pharaoh, Egypt, and slavery, we consider that to be like the world, the flesh, and the devil, right? We have the typology. If you teach Exodus, you're going to teach it like, hey, Pharaoh is a type of the devil, Egypt's a type of the world, and the slavery, the physical slavery, is a type of spiritual bondage to sin. So it's the typologies that you would, everyone's taught that their first year of being a pastor in Calvary Chapel. Pharaoh's a type of the devil, Egypt's a type of the world, and slavery is a type of sin. Which is a legitimate application for that. Jesus in the Gospel of John says that if the son, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. The New Testament harmonizes that the whole world's been taken captive by the wicked one to do his will, we're taken captive by the devil to do his will, and we were all under the sway of the prince of the power of the air, the God, little g, of this age. That goes back to Adam and Eve sinning. That's our life. We are captives, and no matter how much we want to do good for the Lord before we receive Christ and are born of his spirit, we're captives of sin. We, it's a, as it is, his treasures in earthen vessels, and as it is, even with the power of the Holy Spirit, it's like a slugfest, right? I mean, let's be honest. That transformation just... Well, it says in Corinthians, if many things they stand, take heed, thus they fall. Just when you feel like you're doing pretty good, it's like, I'm feeling pretty good. I'm varsity. I made, I made varsity. And then you do some bonehead thing, and you feel like you just, you're back at square one. Because there's treasures in earthen vessels. But we do have the hope because Christ gives us the power to, to all things pertaining to life, to this life, and the kingdom. So it's just a matter of growing in humility and obedience to have victory over things, and it's really a progressive transformation to become more like Christ as we grow from testing trials, temptations, tribulations, and tragedies to become more like Christ by the time you're 80 than you were when you started at 20 or whatever that range is. The goal every year is to be more like Christ by the end of the year. If you think the goal is perfection, you're going to really set yourself up for a fall. We don't try to fall. We just do fall. 
And that's why you can't condemn yourself for yesterday, and that's why you can't have anxiety for tomorrow. Because sometimes you get worried, like, oh, how am I going to handle this situation? Am I going to blow a gasket or, you know, I failed this test every time? Don't even think that way. You might not even live to see tonight. You stay in the moment. And just know the power that we have is Christ in us, the hope of glory, and that when we receive Christ, God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we could become the righteousness of God. And as the Spirit indwells us, he empowers us to be transformed and to have victory. So I know in my own failures, I never would blame my failures on the Lord. I, I, you know, like smart quarterbacks, when they throw an interception, they look at their teammates like, on me, that's on me, that's on me. Like, that's, why would we ever blame the Lord for our own folly? You shouldn't. The power is always there for deliverance, but we're prideful and we're selfish and we're carnal. Uh, you know, like, that's just something we got to, that's why the spirit and the flesh, they war against each other and we have to yield to the Lord to resist temptation. You don't get in a slugfest with temptation. You resist temptation is what you do. Out of Egypt, I called my son. I believe a very practical application here is since Jesus said, you know, he, he, he who the son sets free is free indeed. That's why this really, that's a greater, broader application is because he who sins is a slave to sin. Egypt represents the world and the slavery represents being in bondage to sin. Well, Jesus has total victory when we come to Christ because of who he is and what he's done. We have total victory over our sinful nature. We have total victory to not have the world rule over us. And we have total victory to not have the devil rule over us. And we have total victory over the grave and not to fear it because he conquered all those things. So really, out of Egypt, I called my son. God made his son go to Egypt as a toddler and make the same journey the wilderness Jews did and come back into Israel. And even as their deliverance from physical slavery represented that and really represented a greater deliverance, when Jesus came to Israel, they were looking for a political king to deliver them, just like the Jews under Moses were delivered from Pharaoh. But really what they needed is what Jesus really gives, not the physical slavery deliverance, but the spiritual slavery deliverance through his death on the cross for our sins body of Christ, if the Son sets you free, you're free indeed. And therefore he called his Son out of Egypt, just like he called the nation a millennium before. Now the last one is the funny one. He'll be called the Nazarene. Well, okay, in Numbers, where we get the Nazarite vow in the law. Like, remember Samson was a Nazarite, you don't eat the grapes, you don't touch a dead body, and that kind of stuff. And you don't cut your hair. Well, well, Jesus didn't do that. So Jesus ate and drank with the, with the gluttons and the sinners. You know, that was the accusation against him. He said, hey, John the Baptist came. He walked a straight and narrow. Jesus hung out and, you know, hung out with the people at the, the club, you know. Jesus lived a perfect sinless life more than any Nazarite ever did, but he wasn't under the Nazarite vow. So that, that, that application wouldn't apply which would be a stretch anyways, because a Nazarite was a vow for a person that had nothing to do with a geographical location. And, you know, for 35 years, even before then, when I was Catholic, I'd read this and I'm like, as well as you go like, how's that work? And I just read on because I got my hands full of the stuff I do understand and trying to figure out why is he called a Nazarene. However, it's worth thinking about for a minute. And if you read commentaries and different people, Charles Spurgeon and David Guzik and all these people we I like to look at and see if they say, 
because it says the prophets. So it's not quoting a particular prophecy concerning this statement. It's a broad one. So really, like what, what, what scholars put forth is, it's the general idea of the Old Testament that the type of person he is and where he came from and his identity, his calling card, if you will, his, his brand, if you will, is that of a Nazarene, literally associated with the town of Nazareth. Okay, well, we can start with that. So what's Nazareth? Nazareth. It's nowhere. It's nothing. Remember when they came to Nathaniel in chapter 1 of John and said, hey, we've met the Messiah. He's from Nazareth. He's like, well, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Like, let's say we're going to Vegas. And we say, ah, some, someone's great is coming out of Vegas. Well, yeah, Vegas is a city of millions of people. Yeah, you know, Raiders, the Knights, like, it's the Raiders. Like, Vegas is the new, you know, Los Angeles or something. So, okay, and we said, well, someone great's coming out of Barstow on your way to Vegas. You'd be like, Barstow? Well, there's 50,000 people. I suppose it could happen. Yeah, maybe Barstow. It's like, I didn't see it coming, but yeah, it could work, Barstow. But if I told you someone great's coming out of Baker, you say, Baker? Could anything come out of Baker? It's a giant thermostat that you drive by. Unless you really have to go to the bathroom and you really need something to eat at Del Taco. And you say, like, can anything good come out of Baker? You, you understand what I'm saying here? You can get it, right? Vegas, I could see. Yeah, Barstow, okay. Baker? Can anything good come out of Baker? It, it's like who, when people were selling homes in Southern California during COVID, no one was moving to Baker. They're moving to Arizona and Texas. If you told your family in Orange County, hey, we're fired up, we're moving to Baker, you'd be like, what? Why would you move to Baker? See what I'm saying? And that's how people looked at Nazareth. Why would you move to Nazareth? Does anything good come out of Nazareth? Nazareth is nothing. Why would you live there? Why would you move there? Does anything good, like, if we're watching, like, Division I football and the starting quarterback from USC, it's like, he played at Baker High School. Is there even a high school in Baker? You say, how could, how could the quarterback for USC come from Baker? Barstow, maybe. Vegas, for sure. See, that's, I'm trying to give you an understanding, like, how significant this statement is. So think about this. What did Jesus say? The king of the kings, the king of the universe, when he came, not only was he born in poverty in a, in a barn and laid in a feeding trough, he grew up in a town that you drew by, drove by when you're going somewhere else more important. You didn't even go there. Jesus said he did not come to be served, but to be the servant of all. Where he grew up, makes him the lowest person in the sequence to be esteemed. Whenever he said, I'm Jesus. Oh, Jesus from Jerusalem? The rabbi district? No, I'm Jesus from Nazareth. Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? See, I think this, this totality of Old Testament prophecies concerning where he would grow up and become not a toddler, go from a toddler to elementary age, to junior high and high school, to a young man working, you know, with his stepfather Joseph and carpentry, how he carried himself in the city, the city that later rejected him and wanted to toss him off a cliff. He took the lowest position possible by being from Nazareth. And we see even the response to it when he's presented as a Messiah, people go like, how can the Messiah of Israel come from Nazareth? Exactly. 
because not many noble are called, not many wise, but God uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And there's a foolishness with the cross to the world. And the cross comes from Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth. And that first generation church that began the Great Commission, they went out and they preached the foolish gospel of Jesus, the Son of God, Savior of the world, from Nazareth, insignificant village in the north. It just reminds us that Jesus gave up all of his glory, all of his glory, so he could fully identify with us in our folly. You're washing the dishes at the Sheraton Hotel. You're mopping the floor at Starbucks at 7 at night on Edinger. When Jesus from Nazareth shows up, guess what? He does the dirty dishes you don't even want to touch. When Jesus of Nazareth shows up, he says, give me the mop. I'll do that. You put the pastries away. Jesus took the lowest, lowest form as the king of the universe to save us the crown jewel of his love and affection and creation. Worship generation, body of Christ. Jesus, the shepherd from Bethlehem. Jesus, the son of called out of Egypt, Jesus, the toddler in Nazareth, loves you, and he loves me, and he's always for us, and he'll always be for you. And he's going to see us through in this journey, whatever we're facing, whatever we'll face. Don't ever doubt how far God will go to reach you and your neighbor and even your enemies with his love for his eternal glory. Yes, and amen.